Amen. You may be seated. And uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to look at um, Mark chapter 9 and 10. Um, this morning, and not, not all those verses, uh, we'll be here until well after lunchtime, uh, if we were to do that, but uh, just uh, some selected verses that, uh, for whatever reason, uh, Mark puts uh, some of these verses, the verses that we read, there's other stuff in between them, so we often don't realize that there's these three sections that Jesus is talking about that I think all go together. Um, so there's a, a movie about and let's see, George Foreman uh, that came out. Leslie and I went to the movie theater and saw it, and uh, it was pretty good. And um, the true story of, of his life, uh, I'm sure it's embellished some because that's what uh, movies do. Uh, but I think it's probably out on streaming by now. I don't think it's in the movie theater anymore. But uh, some of you will remember. Um, when George Foreman uh, was fighting and Muhammad Ali, you know, back in the, whenever it was, the 80s, I guess it probably was, maybe 70s. Uh, I was wee little, so I don't remember that. But, but some of you do. And some of you remember Muhammad Ali, uh, for the good and bad, of course, there's, that's true of all of us, that there's good parts of us and there's bad parts of us. Uh, our prayer should be, and we should work to try to make sure there's more good than bad. Uh, but uh, anyway... Uh, I, I don't know much about Muhammad Ali, but I know it came across in the movie, he's very full of himself. Um, and in fact, um, you know, he's famous for saying, you know, I fly like a butterfly and sting like a, a bee. That's right. See, I did know that you all knew that. Uh, but one other thing that he said often, at least in this movie, and I have a feeling he said it in real life just as often, probably more often, I'm the greatest of all time. Uh, well, despite what our friend uh, Mr. Ali says, he was not the greatest of all kind. And in fact, there was one man that lived in the first century that is greater than any other man that lived in the history of the world. And in fact, he was a man that was so great that he changed the calendar. He changed the time, the time for the whole world. Uh, but the message that we're talking about today, the things that the disciples are talking about as Jesus is going about ministering, they're not focused on, man, Jesus is doing some really cool stuff. And they're not even saying, man, isn't Jesus the greatest of all? No, I wish it were true that that's what they were saying. But you know what they were saying? We're pretty bad stuff. We are mighty good. Man, look at all the things that we've seen. And look at the things that we've accomplished. And Jesus uses the most unusual and improbable object lesson to show these knuckleheads and us what it really means to be great in the kingdom of God. And that illustration or object lesson that he uses to show greatness is some snot-nosed, runny-nosed kids that are loud and probably running around, breaking things and making a bunch of noise. 
And yet in the verses that we're going to read this morning, Jesus says to his disciples, unless you become like these children, you have no part in my kingdom. And so let's unpack that and see exactly what uh, Jesus had to say. And we're going to begin reading in verse 33 uh, of Mark uh, chapter 9. It says, He came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road they disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And it wasn't whether Jesus would be the greatest. It was which one of them was going to be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve to them. And he said, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be the last of all and servant of all. And then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And then we're going to drop down to chapter 10 and in verse 13. Then they brought the little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who had brought them. When Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. He took them up into his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Now we're going to drop down to verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know, those that are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be a slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. I think Jesus has a lot of lessons here in uh, these three sections of Mark uh, chapter 9 and 10 that he wants us to learn, just like he wanted the disciples to learn. And they're lessons that are hard for us, because you know, we, can, we have hindsight, we can look back and say, you know, how could those disciples be so goofy? How could they be so hard-headed? How could it take them so long to get it? I think I, when Jesus turned some water into wine, that would have pretty much solidified it for me. But it probably wouldn't have, and it didn't for these 12. But they did know that there was something different about this man named Jesus. But they also had this human desire that all of us have for for power and greed and stuff. And so most of the infighting in the disciples was about power. And so Jesus wants us to understand it's not about power. And the power is of God, not of us. And the sooner we realize that, the greater off we'll be. But Jesus also wants us to understand and know that the way to greatness and the kingdom of God is a much different path than the way to greatness in this world is. This world says it doesn't matter who you have to lie to, step on, stab in the back, cheat, rob, steal, kill. Will you do whatever you have to do to get ahead You just look out for number one, baby, and that's you. That's how the world works. That's how the world worked in the first century too, by the way. And Jesus, in no uncertain terms, tells his disciples, it is not to be so among you. And so Jesus, again, uses this object lesson of some little children to teach us a very... Three, in fact, very important lessons. Let's get to them this morning. The first one is this, that Jesus calls us to childlike faith. Do you know that in order for you to have a position and a part to play in God's plan for this world, you have to be on his team. And this is how you get on his team. You have the faith as a child. Well, that doesn't mean that we become nonsensical or that we forget everything that we learn about science and math and those kind of things. Rather, children tend to accept things. And, and, they, and, Jesus said, and they trust. In fact, children naturally learn to trust until they learn that they can't trust people because people will let them down. But children come into this world by their very nature as trusting. And somewhat loving, they're also selfish. You know, anybody that doubts the reality of a sin nature in mankind only needs to watch two toddlers in the nursery playing with the same toy. Because they don't play well together. 
that toy that one wants, the other one could have had absolutely no interest into it, but as soon as that other child picks that toy up, what do they say? I want that toy. That's not what Jesus is talking about, not being childish like that, but by having a faith that can trust. And the only way that you can have eternal life is putting faith and trust in Jesus. Jesus has said it, and he's going to continue to say it over and over again. He most bluntly says it in the Gospel of John where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus did not buy into this idea that children should be seen and not heard. He also didn't buy into the modern popular lie that all roads lead to heaven. In fact, Jesus made an exclusive claim. He said all roads do not lead to heaven. In fact, there's only one road that leads to heaven. There are a lot of roads out there, but only one of them gets to heaven. And he said, I am that road. If you want to get to heaven, you've got to come through me. That means you've got to understand you can't do it on your own because the reality is the only thing you can do is sin. The only thing any of us can do, unless God intervenes and God you know, gives us a supply of power to overcome it, is sin. We can't be good. But praise God, we can know one who is. And when we know that one that is, and we have put our faith and trust in him, God declares us to be good. All that sin and the the punishment that we deserved is wiped away, not because God just wipes it away, but because Jesus Christ shed his innocent blood to pay my sin debt and your sin debt and all the sin debt of all the world, that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so he says, you must have a childlike faith. That's how it is. Not that you have to show off. That you have to show the Lord how great your abilities are and how much you can do for Him. That's not what God's concerned about. And God will allow you to have a part to play in His plan for your life and this world, but you need to understand two things. It's not your plan, it's His. And number two, you don't get to pick how the plan works. He does, because it's His plan. And so he says, hey, listen, if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, you've got to become like one of these children and exercise childlike faith. He had just put that out of his mouth, and maybe just a few days. We don't know exactly how much longer, but a little bit had passed. And we come to chapter 10 and verse 13. And a group of people had brought some children to the Lord for him to bless. Now, what did Jesus just say in verses 33 and following that we read earlier? 
Suffer not the little children. In other words, don't keep the children away from me. He had just put that out of his mouth. He was teaching how important it is that we have a childlike faith and that everyone is welcome in the kingdom of God. No one is too young or too old for God to save them if they are, have the ability to recognize their sinfulness and recognize that Jesus paid the penalty that they owed and received that gift, they can be saved. Jesus had just taught that lesson. And so here, maybe two days, maybe three days, maybe a week later, we find them again in a crowd. People had brought little children to Jesus for him to bless. And these 12 knuckleheads... They don't say, oh great, we've got some children. They say, oh no, there's some little rugrats and they're going to make noise and they're going to make messes. We need to get rid of them. And they got mad. And they went over and told this parents, you get those kids out of here. But notice what Jesus did. Jesus rebukes them. And again, he teaches the same lesson he just did a week ago or so, maybe. Maybe a few days. And he's back to the teach, having to teach the same lesson again. So he takes the children, puts them in his lap, puts his hands on them, and blesses them. A reminder that Jesus calls us to childlike faith. But then I want us to understand as we read these three sections in Mark chapter 9 and 10 that not only does Jesus call us to childlike faith, but Jesus also calls us to childlike love. It's not that the disciples did not love children. I think they probably did. But what they didn't like was interruptions. And as we've read through and we're going through the Gospel of Mark, every time they turn around, there's another interruption. You remember not long ago there was the Gentile woman that came while they were trying to eat dinner, and Jesus said, can you get rid of this lady so we can at least eat in peace? There's always all these interruptions. And they got frustrated with that. But Jesus, over and over again, wanted to teach them an important lesson. A lesson about love and a lesson about interruptions. Jesus wanted the disciples and us to realize those interruptions were not interruptions at all, but divine appointments. And divine opportunities. So Jesus calls us to childlike love. He said, listen, these kids are not an interruption. And Jesus showed he loved these children by making time for them. By bringing them up to his, they, he set them on his lap and around him. And blessed them, taught them, talked with them. 
children have an uncanny ability to love. Now, I also have an uncanny ability because of the sin nature that is naturally within all of us to hate. But we also have an ability to love. And the reality is hate is more taught and caught than it is anything else. Little children that don't know they're supposed to be enemies with certain people because of the color of their skin or what side of the railroad track they live on or whatever else. They just see, you know, it's amazing to see groups of kids. They just gel together. Adults don't do that very easily, but kids do. And Jesus is teaching us that, hey, listen, you need to love everybody, no matter how old, no matter how young, no matter... And see, human we love the people that love us back. That's easy. And we love the people that can help us get ahead. Or the people that we can use for some reason. We love them. Because they can do something for us. Now, little kids, they can't do much of anything for you. All they do is cause trouble and make messes and make noise and interrupt. But Jesus said, they're the ones you need to love the most. And they're the ones you need to be most like. So Jesus says, listen. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of heaven as a little child shall have no part in it. So not only the, receiving, the exercising faith, but then the living out of that faith, which is love. John says it this way in First uh, John several times, right? Remember, he says, God is love. He says, if we know God, then we love. And if we don't love, the love of God has not been in us. In other words, if God's love's not in us, we're not in Him. And so Jesus reminds us that we are called to exercise and exhibit childlike love. That we're to welcome everyone and to exclude no one. Now that does not mean that we just say, well, hey, it doesn't matter what you think or how you live, we're all just going to hug it out and it'll all just work out in kumbaya land. No, that's not what he's saying. But what he is saying, even those that are sinning, even those, in fact, that Jesus says are your enemies, love them. Welcome them. Be kind to them. Why? Because Jesus understands you catch a lot more flies with honey than vinegar. And by you sharing the love of God with somebody that is far from God, will hopefully pull them closer to God. It's not going to push them away anymore. Anyway. Hopefully it will pull them closer to God. Will they just come to God overnight? Probably not. But they'll move closer. And they'll remember that the love 
that a child of God shared with them. And they may reject, they may not, they put it out of their mind for what, but it's still in that brain, and eventually what's going to happen is those gospel seeds that were planted by love will eventually begin to sprout. So love is like a fertilizer that helps those gospel seeds grow. And our hate and rejection and you know, disassociation with people that are different or people that we don't like or people that believe differently than we do, it's like Roundup on those gospel seeds. We all know if you want seeds to grow, you don't put Roundup around them. You don't put poison on the ground that you want to grow. You put fertilizer and healthy stuff to help it grow. I think Jesus is trying to get the disciples to see the same lesson. It all has to do with greatness. And how, we, how the kingdom of God works. And it works very much differently than the powers of this world work. The power of this world is built on money and stuff and position. So much so, John and James, two disciples that most of the time did pretty good, made the biggest bonehead request perhaps we find in the Gospels. They come and they say, hey Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. What a dumb thing to ask to start with. Jesus doesn't say yes or no right away. He says, what do you want me to do? And they said, let us be on, right beside you, on, one on your left and one on your right. Now, somewhat of a note, they wanted to be near Jesus. That's a good thing. But the problem was, they thought the position was what mattered. And Jesus' reply tells us, it's not the position that matters. It's that you're in the room that matters. And so Jesus wraps it up with this last lesson. And it is this, that Jesus calls us to Savior-like service. We're to exercise childlike faith and childlike love. But then we are lastly called to exercise and display Savior-like service. Because you see, Jesus is love. And because he did love us, it didn't matter that he was God. He became a servant. He became a slave. The word servant there in chapter 10 is the word that we get our English word deacon from. Deacons are... Servants for the church. Are they leaders in the church? Yes, they are. But not leaders like the world considers leaders. Because Jesus said the way to be a true leader is to serve others. Jesus, by his example, said, I'm going to show you what love is. We all just said, remember, we're to exercise love. 
Jesus then gives us this example of how it works and how we show it. And it's not by going and fussing at people because they brought their snotty-nosed kids to Jesus to interrupt his preaching. It's by serving. And in fact, he says, whoever wants to be first not only has to be a servant, but has to be a slave to all. In other words, Jesus says, hey, the way to greatness in the kingdom of God is the exact opposite than the way to greatness in this world. And so if you're going to chase after greatness, chase after greatness in God's kingdom, because number one, it's going to last forever. You'd be great in this world, guess what? Eventually it's going to pass away and nobody's going to remember you. Can anybody here tell me who the fifth president of the United States was? Probably not. Was he a great man? Tim says he knows. It was James Madison. That is right. All right, but most of us couldn't, wouldn't know that. Because it was a long time, and all those old presidents, we had to learn them in school. But unless you have an eidetic memory, you've long forgotten it. It's filed away in there somewhere, but you probably can't pull it up when you need it. So it doesn't matter how great people are in this world. Eventually, people that are only great by this world's standards are forgotten. But in God's kingdom, there's a place called eternity that lasts forever. And it is a whole lot more important that you're in that crowd that's going to be with Jesus. And so Jesus says, hey, you want to be in that crowd, you exercise childlike faith, and you show that faith by the love that you have for one another, but then it works out how it fleshes itself out is you become a servant. You serve and you understand that this life is not about you at all. It's about God. And the opportunity to share with people that need to hear it, the love of God, and the offer of salvation that God extends to absolutely everyone who will receive it. And so Mark reminds us, listen, Jesus didn't come to be served. Did he have the right to be served? Absolutely he did. These yo-yo disciples should have been groveling at his feet, serving him, saying, hey, can I get you some coffee? Can I get you some grapes? Can I go get you some olives off the tree? You know, what can I do to help you? They weren't, by the way, but they should have been. Jesus says, you know what? I am Lord of lords and I'm king of kings. But he didn't come with a mighty white horse. Jesus' Savior came with a basin and a towel. He came as a servant. And if Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, did not think serving others was beneath him, 
How dare anyone think it's below them? And in fact, Jesus says, the way you can tell if you really are going to be great in my kingdom is when it's not about you being great at all, but it's about you making a difference for my name's sake and for my glory. And you want everyone to hear and everyone to know the love that God has for them. And that people exercise faith. See, it's a cycle. It's this continuous circle that as we exercise faith and then extend love and express that love through service, others join us on that journey. But then we're also continuously exercising faith. It's not a one-time thing. It's continuous. We don't get to say, well, I put my faith in Jesus yesterday. You've got to do it every day. And you've got to love every day. It would not do for Leslie to say to me one day, I love you, Aaron, and not say I love you again for a whole other year. I wouldn't have that. I'd be asking after maybe day two, Leslie, you haven't said I love you. What's the deal? Have you got laryngitis? I thought it had been pretty quiet in here. No. It's this continual decision. And God says, and Jesus was teaching us and teaching the disciples that it is a continual day-by-day decision and lifestyle that we have to make. Jesus laid his life down as a ransom. You think of another king that ever paid a ransom for his people. They're not one. But Jesus did because he's the greatest of all time. And so we ask a question. The first and the most important question is this. Do you know him? And does he know you? Have you put your faith and trust in this man named Jesus that is the greatest of all time? Praise God if you have. But if you haven't, today would be a great day this last Sunday of June to make that decision. But then I think for probably most of us, the question becomes this. All right, you've exercised childlike faith. Are you displaying it? Are you following the Savior's example of service? Do you have a serve me attitude? Or do you have a Lord, how can I serve attitude? There's a great difference in that. And the answer to that question says a lot about where our walk with the Lord is. So is Jesus Christ the greatest of all time in your life? Or are you fighting tooth and nail to knock him off the throne? Well, if you're trying to knock him off the throne, let me tell you right now, friend, you're not going to succeed in doing it, so quit doing it. Throw up the white flag of surrender and just say, Lord, you be, you be Lord, and I'll be your servant. Just use me as your hands and feet. You see, when we're not concerned about what side of the throne of Jesus we're going to be sitting on, we're just concerned about us making it there by God's grace. 
and we're concerned about making sure that there's as many people there with us as possible, we're, that's where God wants us to be. Jesus' point was, listen, it's not for you to argue and worry about what position you're going to have. You just be faithful. And you'll have a position to play. book of Revelation, we read about the 12 apostles sitting around the throne of God. So I do think they make it near that throne. Not because of what they did, but because they were faithful and because they trusted. And they let Jesus be the greatest of all. They found that when it didn't matter to them who the greatest was, See, if you're concerned about your name being in lights and you getting all the credit, you're missing the point. But when it's not important about who gets the credit besides God, that's when we're on the right path. Let's pray here. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your goodness and your love to us. Lord, we thank you that you do love us. And Lord, that you are patient with us when you have to teach us lessons time and time and time again. And Lord, if there's one here today in the auditorium or one watching on the internet that's never trusted in you, would you help them today to begin a new life by putting their faith in you? The journey to the kingdom of God begins with putting childlike faith in the Savior. Lord, you loved us so much, you came and died for us. Help us to love you with all we are. And Lord, help us to serve you and help us serve others in your name. God, our prayer is that this church would be a gospel planting and gospel harvesting church that we would see the mighty power of God work in our lives and in the lives around us in the life of this church. Our prayer is that this community is changed by the gospel's power. But that change only comes by exercising childlike faith and exercising childlike love and exercising a Savior-like service. Lord, help us to serve others. Remembering that we are ultimately a servant of you. And we do it in your name. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Let's stand together. We're going to sing this hymn of response. If God spoke into your heart, there's a decision you need to make. Today would be a great day. This would be a great time for you to make that decision today.